0: We're jumping into Leviticus, and uh, we're going to be looking at chapters 8 through 10. Before you make your way there, though, um, it's Leviticus, and I'm me, so we should pray, right? We get God's help in this. Lord, you are great, and um, you are worthy. We should say that your name is blessed. We should turn and give you honor, uh, whether we see uh, sun or rain. Uh, Good times and bad. Um, You're not just great, you're good, and you're good to us. And sometimes in this fallen world, it's hard to see that. Um, Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, uh, just to behold you with eyes of faith in your glory, Uh, see who you are uh, by your nature, by your power, by your goodness, and see ourselves accurately and respond in worship and so I just pray that you'd be glorified that we'd point to Jesus in the right way and that your people would be built up and if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know Jesus you'd turn the light on uh, that they would come and believe in Jesus and be forgiven and made alive and saved forever it's in Jesus name we pray amen all right so we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapters 8 through 10 not going to read it all the way through Uh, we'll take it a little bit as we go and if you remember, we said we're going to take a high-level view. Um, you know, it, it'll maybe keep us out of the weeds a little bit, but it'll also Leviticus is, a, is an eminently understandable book if you do that, when you do that, especially from our Gentile context. And the last time, is a couple of weeks ago, last time we pointed to uh, the centrality of God's holiness and the need for sacrifice, that God is holy and that if, uh, if we, in our unholiness, if that problem would be addressed, there was going to need to be sacrifice, something to stand in our place. This morning, we're going to talk about the need for a priest. Was a, you, you need a representative to go to God on your behalf, and so do I, and so did they in their context. And so that central verse that we've talked about from the outset comes from Leviticus 19, verse 2. And it says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And notice that we tend to think about, and we're going to see it in this passage as well, we tend to think about God's holiness as a problem. Fair enough. That when, uh, when we encounter God in his holiness, what gets exposed in us is our unholiness and how that has to be addressed. And so the problem that that can create is this idea that, oh, okay, well, I'm not holy and I can't Make myself holy. What's the answer? It turns out that holiness—the holiness of God—is not only the problem from one angle; it is the answer, and we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. So, or this morning. Tonight, this is going to be a long one. You know, <laughs> strab it on. Um, what does Leviticus solve? What does it solve? Well, in a nutshell, it solves the problem of separation that goes all the way back to Genesis 3, the fall. the Sin enters into the world, it's part of our nature, we're separated from God and that's a problem. God is absolutely, uncompromisingly holy and we've fallen into sin and we're, we have irreparably fallen into sin and that's created separation. Sin and death don't belong in the presence of God. And so sin and death are excluded from the presence of God. And so what does Leviticus do? Well, it actually answers that problem of Genesis 3, or it's a start to it anyway. So if you look at Exodus 29, the book before Leviticus, God says something phenomenal. He saves his people. That's the book of Exodus, right? They're in bondage in Egypt. He delivers them by his power and by his grace, And he says, you know, he's going to set up his tabernacle, his tent. God is going to set his tent in the midst of the camp of his people. So he's going to be right there with them. And he says, there in the tabernacle, I will meet with the people of Israel. What a stunning statement. There's been this separation all this time. And he's saying, I'm going to take up residence with my people. I'm going to live among my people and I'm going to meet with them. And so in verse, uh, at the end of it, At the end of verse um, 43, he says, And it shall be, it, the tabernacle, shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. What he means there is, I am going to make them holy. I'm going to take up residence among my people, I'm going to have my place of residence, I'm going to to make that holy, there are going to be articles in my house, I'm going to make that holy, there are going to be priests dedicated to service of me, I'm going to make them holy. And in verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them, I am the Lord their God. Problem of separation, and God says, I'm going to live uh, among my people. But at the end of Exodus, in, in chapter 40, verse 35, they set up, you know, there had been this uh, pattern where they, um, they, they put God's tent together, and right, there's a campground there, and, and, and where God resides. And whenever they do that, His glory fills the holy place and when he when it does it says in verse 35 Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of lord of the lord filled the tabernacle i'll just remind you of what we called the voltage rule and it is this it is that if god's holiness comes into contact with anything that is unclean death results if God's holiness comes into contact with anything that is unclean, death results. And we should think of uncleanness as a violation. How do you become unclean? A violation of one of God's commands or contact uh, with something that would, you know, that is the result, the logical result of sin, and that's death. So sin and death. Sin and death uh, make a person unclean. So again, to frame it properly... We look at God's holiness and from one angle we go, well, that's a problem. God is holy and I'm not. And if I'm in that that kind of range of unclean and I come into contact with His holiness, death results. That's an impassable problem for me. But we find by the initiative of God, by the gracious initiative of God, that what looks like the problem is actually the answer. The answer is not to avoid God's holiness but somehow to become holy. And that's impossible for us, but God takes this gracious initiative so that we can become holy and be in His presence. Okay, that's the framework. So what do we find in chapters 8 through 10? Well, what God is doing here, He's already... He's called Aaron and his sons to be priests. He's established the, the, uh, the measurements, the dimensions of the tabernacle where he's going to reside in the camp among his people. And what he's doing here is he's establishing a priesthood. And we're just going to take it chapter by chapter. Like I said, we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pick our spots there, but let's start in chapter 8. And if you start there, uh, it says the Lord spoke to Moses, and this is a really common. It, it, there's a rev, uh, uh a revelatory chain of command where the Lord speaks to Moses, the prophet, who then speaks to the priesthood. Okay. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So he he says, all right, it's time now and what we're going to do. And that's what's going on here. Aaron and his sons are consecrated uh, at the Lord's command. Consecrated. They're going to be made holy. They're going to go from the common to the holy, set apart for God's purposes. Now, what, you, what we're going to find as we survey this chapter, chapter 8, is it's all very particular. It's all very specific. So, for example... Um. These are the first seven days that this goes down. They're, you know, they're camped out at Mount Sinai, and there are particular persons. It's not everybody who's going to become a priest. You don't apply for it. Like, like, you couldn't just walk in and go, you know what? I'm in a priestly mood. I think I'm going to take on priestly functions today. I mean, you couldn't do that. You couldn't say, I've always wanted to do that, and my mom told me when I grow up I can be anything I want to be. You couldn't do that. It was Aaron and his sons. There's going to be that Levitical, that Aaronic, heritage that is going to be, that's established because of the Lord's calling. You see that in verse 1, who does Moses take to do this? Take Aaron and his sons. Now they had already been called in Exodus 28 verses 1 through 2. God had already called Aaron and his sons to be this. So they've been called, but they haven't been consecrated yet. They haven't been set aside and gone through that purpose to be made holy before God in God's presence. So God says, then bring near to you uh, Aaron your brother and his sons with him among, from, um, um, from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons. And their names are Nadab and Abihu, they're going to feature shortly, and Eleazar and Ithamar. You make holy garments for them, uh, for glory and for beauty. So they've already been called, but what we find are particular persons, very specific Another thing that we see is that this is to be done in a particular place. This is not like, you know, take your inner self, wherever you want to go, and work on you. You work on you and find your own space and place to do that. Um, Instead, it's to be done before the Lord in God's space. So, in verse 3, assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And that's where this whole thing goes down. More verses on that... um, It's uh, before the Lord in verse 4. Moses did as the Lord commanded. The congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Uh, Verses 10 through 11, they're all in the tabernacle that's going to be anointed with oil. Verse 31, uh, he tells the priest, You're going to do something at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Verse 33, don't go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die. Verse 35, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain night and day for seven days. It's a very particular place. You cannot leave. There are boundaries here. You have to stay in the boundaries. There is a certain process going on through which you're being consecrated. So it's a particular person's, it's a particular place. And then they wear particular clothes verses 6 through 9. Now, some of you might be interested in this. Some of you, you know, you wake up and you just put on whatever's next in your closet or off your floor, whatever the case is, right? You know, like, not too bad, just wear it again, Uh, you know. They had to go through a process. So, if you read verses 6 through 9, remember Moses is the prophet. He is God's designate, right? Right? And he is acting for God through this process. So he gives his brother a bath, which seems kind of weird, but it's for ritual purposes, right? Um, So he gives his brother, he bathes him at a certain place, and there were garments, what he's supposed to wear, that he puts on. So verses 6 through 9. Moses brought Aaron and his sons, washed them with water. He put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band, and he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the Urim and the Thuman, and he, put, he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in the front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. So whatever else you get, there are certain things that he's supposed to go through this process to wash and wear and to wear that only before the Lord, only there. Now, before he leaves, he's got to basically do the whole thing in reverse. You find that in another place in Leviticus. So there are particular clothes. And we also find that it's by a particular process of anointing and sacrifice. So anointing is oil. And what it means, you know, there are a lot of like spiritual sounding words and it is a spiritual word but, I mean, at root, it just means to smear. And so they, they're, they're anointing, setting apart for consecration these different things. The tabernacle, it'll say in verses, let me get my verses right, in verses 10 through 12, the tabernacle, the articles in the tabernacle, but not just that, Aaron, a person. And what he's doing is he's setting aside Aaron as, I'm going to make Aaron holy, and we think, oh, holy, like not sinful, Sure. He's addressing the sin, Aaron's going to sin again. He's addressing the sin, but when he's saying, I'm going to make him holy, a big feature of that is saying, Aaron belongs holy to me. Aaron is mine. Um, but not just by a process of anointing, a process of sacrifice. So if you, if you do a little survey, if you look at verse 14, he brings the bull of the sin offering. What follows describes that. In verse 18, they bring the ram of the burnt offering. And then in verse 22 and following, the ram of ordination. And there are these kind of interesting things. With the ram, they take the blood and they put it on his right earlobe, his uh, right toe, and his right thumb. Right? Now, a lot of, like... Sometimes scholars read into these, and they might be right, they may not be, but, I mean, there's a fair kind of speculation. What looks like it's pretty safe to do is to say what he's, what he's saying is that everything is addressed by blood to consecrate him, and it's, it's the totality of the person. What he does, you know, the, the command that goes in, what he does with his skill, his strong side... Um, the whole person is being consecrated. So there's this very particular process. But as a, as a quick little insert here, do you notice there are three offerings here right off the bat? So to, to address the sin, to consecrate them, and to ordain them into the priesthood. And what you're finding here is that they're going to great lengths to address defilement Uh, in God's presence in other words Aaron and his son's mere presence before the Lord defiles the place and so they're having to offer these sacrifices to address that to cleanse the place right so that's what you're seeing you're seeing they've got to go to great lengths the defilement that that they bring in is being addressed so that they can be holy before the Lord through sacrifice and then lest you miss this it takes time Seven days. So in verse, verses 33 and 35, look at this. You shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. In other words, this is, you can become unclean in a moment, but to go through the process of, of consecration here as a priest, it is going to take some time because the, the, the depth of the problem. That's part of what they're showing here. But more than that, pop down to verse 35, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain uh, day and night for seven days. In other words, you didn't just go and, uh, you know, and the whistle blows at five o'clock and then you go home, you know, hey, honey, how's everything? How are the kids today? You know, the oldest one, you're going to have to address him. You know, all the normal, you need to take out the trash, all the normal conversations that you might have when you come home from work, none of that, night and day, they were camped in the Lord's camp. And then read the rest of it. You remain there night and day for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you may not die. So I've been commanded. They leave that boundary and they die because they've been, they're in the process of consecration, anointing, oil, all of that. They belong to God and they can't violate that without death. All right, so this is a serious process, and all of the congregation, all the people of Israel see this going on. Um, All of it's very particular. So let's just do a quick survey, and you can see a little bit of this. In verse 1, the Lord speaks to Moses, saying, you know, do X, Y, and Z, right? So he speaks to him, and there's this little refrain, Moses did as the Lord commanded. So you see this in verse 4, Moses did as the Lord commanded him. You pop down to verse 9 at the end. Uh, as the Lord commanded Moses. You know, there are instructions. Verse 13, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 17, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 21, as the Lord commanded Moses. I know you're getting tired of this, too bad. Uh, At the end of verse 29, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 36, see, that's the end of the chapter, so this is the last one. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Now, what's he doing there? Well, if you get anything, why does he keep repeating that? Moses isn't going, you know, I think I like the couch over here. Nah, let's do it over here. I think you should wear this or that. What the author is going to great pains to show all of us is that they are acting out what the Lord has prescribed. So when we say this is very particular, it is the Lord's particularity that is in view because of the common and the unclean to made either holy or clean. That unholiness, that sin and death is a big, big problem. Another thing, and this will be the last thing on on chapter 8, and it's a warmer side, it's kind of tucked in. It's in verse 31. Do you notice if you read verse 31, they're through all the offerings and all of that stuff, and it says, And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it, and the bread that is in the basket of the ordination offerings. Aaron and his sons shall eat it. We see all this ritual and we think, you know, all these rules and and whatnot. This leads up to a meal of fellowship. Remember Leviticus answers the problem of Genesis 3? So it's leading up to this. All of this is before the Lord. If you look at, you know, these different parts of it, this little phrase, before the Lord is going to be there. There's communion. What these rules do is they navigate this problem so that God's wrath can be appeased, the ritual is appeasing God's wrath and taking them into relationship. The symbol there, what's been lost in the fall, Genesis 3, the priests representing the people are in God's presence in his place sharing a meal with him. It's a stunning picture. Right? So they're just through. That's the first seven days. Now what happens on the eighth day? Well, glad you asked. That's chapter 9, right? And so what they're doing here is they're kind of finishing the consecration process. There have been uh, seven days where they're going through that. And on the eighth day, there's this transition that takes place. And Aaron performs the first tabernacle service. And at the end of the chapter, God accepts his offering. And so you see this early. On the eighth day, that's what we see. Let me back up. This is the first service. And... Before this, Moses has been acting. And then, you know, Aaron is kind of his little brother, and he's helping out. He's like kind of the little helper guy. And what's going on here is that Aaron and his sons, but Aaron in particular, is going from kind of the priest permit to priest license. You know, right? When you've got a driver and they've got their permit, you don't just say, like, it's all yours. You know, like, you're not going to take this interstate Drive. You don't say that, they've got to get their license to act on their own, right? You, you need a co-pilot uh, in there to save the world from them. Um, and so, in this chapter, there's a transition, Aaron and his sons, but Aaron in particular, transitioned from kind of being that in-between to taking on the full priestly duties. So, it's going down. That's what's happening here. And there's a central theme, but you can see the framework in verse 7. Look at that with me. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. And bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Now, notice what he's got to do. This kind of priest has to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And he's also representing the people and he's going to offer a sacrifice for them. So, you know, bring these offerings for yourself and for the people. And in verses 8 through 14, it says, the priests did this for themselves. And then in verses 15 through 21, they offer the sacrifices for the people. So those are the two parts there. But there's a central theme that shows up in chapter 9. And again, think Genesis 3, the problem of separation. It says, the glory of the Lord will appear to you. Um. There is fellowship and worship. So in verse 1, it's on the eighth day. God commands these sacrifices. Uh, Aaron is officially stepping into this new role to do this. And we've said before that the tabernacle is a throwback to the Garden of Eden. This is a new creation in some respects. Um, and so the presence of, because of the presence of sin, they have to keep offering sacrifices to address the defilement right there in the Lord's presence. But in these new creation overtones, it says the glory of the Lord will appear. So look at verse Uh, 4. They're going to sacrifice before the Lord, and at the end of verse 4, today the Lord will appear to you. So on the eighth day, they've been consecrated. They're offering these sacrifices. He's going to step into his priestly duties, and what he says here is that the glory of the Lord is going to appear to you. And then pop down and see it again in verse 6. Do everything that's commanded so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Uh, verse 8, Moses now recedes and, and Aaron is in the forefront Aaron and his sons become the primary actors and then in verse 23 the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people we're going to talk a little bit more about how in just a moment verses 20 at the end of the chapter so they, so they this is their first you know, solo flight this is their first they're driving to the grocery store for the parents without a parent in the car okay? they're running a, a real official errand for the parents right And so they do this, and what happens? Well, verses 22 through 24, it says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. So he blesses the Lord. He's representing them, right? Verse 23, and Moses and Aaron did what? Now, in Exodus 40, verse 35, Aaron could not enter into you know, in that holy place, because of the glory of the Lord that filled it. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Note verse 24, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. In other words, we shouldn't see like, oh, hey, neat little thing. I guess God made a cameo. I guess the Lord must be present on some level. This was so stunning that the people saw it and it says they shouted and they fell on their faces before the Lord. Now, part of it's our cultural context, right? But we normally don't, we're not normally that expressive. And so even when we see great things, we tend to like go, oh, well, that that was great. You know, and I come from this, I tend to come from this kind of I don't, some people call it boring. I prefer understated. But you know, where you say, like the, the emotion might be pretty strong, but you kind of say it in a more subdued way. And so when you say see something great, you tend to just observe, well, that was great. These people are moved, like physically moved, not like physically moved, I, like I was welling up or something like that. They shout, meaning that they kind of erupt, they're stunned. By this demonstration of God's presence and power, and they worship. The glory of God appears. God is with them. God is in their presence. And they see his greatness and his power, and they worship. Now, God accepts, so fire comes out and consumes the offering. And, uh, you know, like, like I said, when you see that, when you think about Exodus 40, verse 35, Moses wasn't permitted to enter. And then these sacrifices have been made and they've gone through the process of all of this and Moses and Aaron enter. It's like, boom, nice. That's that's the answer to the problem. This is a very climactic moment, right? God accepts it worked, you might say. Right, I mean, here's God's holiness, his inviolable holiness, and this process worked. God has been very gracious to lay this out. And the purpose of the Levitical system looks like it's being fulfilled, but it looks like it's only for a moment. Now, stop here, and this is going to come into play in future weeks. When we think about Leviticus, and we're going to come across a lot of rules, a lot of rules, and this is what I want you to know. This is not my line, but it's a good line. Leviticus is not a bunch of random rules it's a resolution to a problem. So we read it and we go, well, why would you do that? right? Why would, you, why would you have a rule about this or a rule about that? Remember in their context, they're separating. There's the realm of sin and death outside the camp. And then there's the realm of God's presence where his glory is and where his holiness cannot be violated. Now, God's holiness makes contact, uh, contact Uh, with something unclean death results, but the answer is for that to be made holy. All right, so that's chapter 9. All right, let's look at chapter 10. So you go, hey, great, everything's going along swimmingly. We've done, you know, eight days, seven days for consecration, eighth day, they're in the process of the eighth day, everything's going great, glory of the Lord, and we're not exactly sure about the time, but it looks like it's pretty close in time in chapter 10. What happens here? Well, Two of Aaron's sons disregard God's rules, and they die. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord." Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now that's a lot in those first three verses. So you look at chapters 8 and 9, and you think, awesome. And you look at uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, and you tend to go, well, here we are again right? Look, I mean, what are we likely to do if given a chance um, to realize something special? Well, all the priests are still in there. They're still within the boundary. They're not allowed to come out. And uh, I want you to compare something. Remember chapter 9, verse 24, they offered uh, a sacrifice and an offering the way they were supposed to, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed it. And what happens here? In verses 1 through 3, fire comes out and consumes them. Now you've got to realize that a priest is acting for the people, and when he offers a sacrifice and lays his hands on that sacrifice, that animal is standing in their place to bear their sin, right? That fire comes out from before them and gives them, or from before the Lord and gives them exactly what God said. They're standing in that place where their sin should have had them there. What we see here is, one, God cares not only that he is worshipped, but how he is worshipped. You know, we don't get to make it up on our way. We don't get to imagine in our minds that God is a certain way. So this little line says, unauthorized fire. What does that mean? What does that mean? Commentators have had their guesses on this. And, and I mean, there are good theories on that. But here's why I wanted to go to Great Pains in chapter 8 to say, hey, it was particular this and particular that. The Lord laid out everything. This is how everything is supposed to go. And whatever else we get, some people think that maybe it was alcohol. First thing that happens in Leviticus 16 is they say, hey, listen, you're not supposed to drink whenever you do this. It seems like an obvious thing. Like, you know, hey, drinking and driving, bad idea, right? You know, uh, uh, drinking and texting your ex, ex, also a very bad idea, right? You know, things like that. Uh, you know, what, like... If you ever wonder, I promise you, the only thing that's in here is Billings Finest, right? This is just h U O, right? You don't violate those certain things. It should be a kind of an understood thing. You know, were they, were they priesting under the influence here, Nadab and Abihu? That's possible, but we're not told specifically. And I think maybe, here's me speculating, maybe one of the reasons for that is that if we saw very specifically what they did, we would say, don't do that, that thing. And what actually is going on is the, the word unauthorized. They know exactly what God said and they went, eh, let's see. I mean, is God really there? Is God really in this? I think I'm just going to mess with this on my own. So they, they take the sacred things of God and they just play with them. i just tell you like, you can mess with me, you can mess with the person next to you, but you just don't mess with the Almighty. He's the one you don't mess with. Like, you can have your hang-ups, and you can, you can lay all that on everybody else. You can be irreverent, and you can lay that on everybody else, and maybe they'll put up with it, or maybe they'll give you what you deserve, but you don't mess with the Almighty. I'm not saying he's not gracious. I am saying he's very self-respecting. And these two guys mock him they, they knowingly come into this and they mock him. Um, um, so, did you notice that at the end of this that it says, uh, Moses held his peace. Moses held his peace. Or Moses. Aaron held his peace. He didn't say anything. Now, why is that? Well, they're going to be people, the sons are going to come and they're going to take... Uh, him out. Our relatives and uncle and his sons are going to come, and they're going to take the dead bodies out. The priests inside can't touch those dead bodies, or they'll become defiled. So they've got to take them out. And what Mo or what Aaron can't do is he can't align himself with his sons there. He has been consecrated to belong to the Lord, and so he can't let his hair hang down like mourning. Uh, he can't tear his clothes like mourning. He can't leave. Uh, and mourn so he's told in verse 6 don't let your hair hang down lest you die verse 7 don't leave the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die so let me take a couple of pains with this and we'll compare in chapter 18 verse 5 i would just want to address a kind of a common mistake that people make with this God talks about how he's holy and you, you shall walk in my statutes. And in verse 5, he says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And so what we've tended to do is go like, oh, well, if you do them, you'll live by them. What does that mean? Well, I guess as he's saying, you climb a ladder to salvation. Is this a workspace thing? You can become righteous that way. No, he's not saying you climb a ladder to heaven. You're not working for your salvation. The sin's already there. It's already been committed. The defilement's already there being addressed by those sacrifices. Instead, Nadab and Abihu, he's saying, listen, you need to keep these rules lest you die. You need, this is how you can do this so that you don't violate my standards of holiness, because if you do, you'll be unclean, voltage rule, and you'll die. So compare this to the Old, Te- Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament you believe that the Lord would forgive you through the making of the sacrifices. What do you do in the New Testament? All those offerings have been fulfilled in Jesus, and you believe that the Lord will forgive you through the offering of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. The pointing. So Aaron held his peace. What he's saying is, I don't have a charge to make against God. God was right in doing what he did. Now, I don't know where you are on this, um, I think we tend to look at this, and I've got a son, and I've got a daughter, and we tend to go, well, how could you not mourn? Well, part of it is he belongs wholly to God. And when that goes down, he's got to align himself wholly with God and not with his sons who were wicked rebels who gave God the bird there. All right. God the bird uh, was a free embellishment. Uh, (laughs) Verses 8 through 10 um, of this. The Lord spoke to Moses. Interesting. Here's where God speaks directly to Moses, and it's a transition. Drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. That's why some people think maybe this is part of what motivated Nadab and Abihu. It may have been part of it. But in verses 10 and 11, you get a job description of the priests. And this is what it says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. What are you to do if you're a priest? Well, you make a distinction between what's, what's holy and common, what's clean and unclean, and then you teach people everything. Your, your job is to discern these things, you know them, and then you teach God's people what they are. So it's a particular job description. By the way, you're to guard this sacred space. Guess what we do in the New Testament? I don't have time to like expound on this. You know what the, the new temple is? It's us. You know what we guard? We guard the temple of God, this holy place. And so that if you're to come in to be a part of God's people, and the church recognizes that, we do that by saying, yes, you've been show these markers of grace that you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus and if you no longer do that we address that person and remove them right Um, verses 10 and 11 show those job descriptions what are the holy things holy things are things set apart for the worship of God tabernacle the uh, utensils in there and the priests those are the holy things the common things are things that are clean and are in common use at the camp. And unclean things are anything that's been defiled by sin or what results from sin, which is death. Um, let me wrap up this way. Um, there's, a, there's a section at the end, but let's, let, me, let me go to two reflections just looking at the time. What do we get out of this? The need for a priesthood. Two things. One is that the Levitical system is gracious, but clearly provisional. Levitical system, God is establishing a priesthood, a priest who can act for them and represent them. They need that, and it's gracious. It is gracious. It is a way of access that navigates His holiness without them being destroyed. It works in that sense. You'd say, you know, it kind of works. But it's clearly provisional. I mean, it's gracious, but it's also not enough. Um, It's arduous and incomplete. You know, Hebrews Hebrews 7.11 says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, which is where Jesus comes in, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? What's he saying there? Listen, if it worked, it would have been kept. This wasn't something that would work. This wasn't something that would last. Now, very briefly, does that mean that this is a failure? Not at it's an inception. What, it's not a failure. It's a pointer. What was God doing here? He, he was showing them the blueprint for what was going to be built. You don't look at a blueprint and go, well, that didn't work. Nobody can live there. It's only a piece of paper, right, or whatever engineers use these days, right? It, 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 it doesn't work that way. No. It actually points to what is going to be built and what will work. And that's all the Levitical priesthood did. But it was clearly provisional. It wasn't going to work that way. It was going to take Jesus to do that. So if you look at Hebrews 7, verses 22 through 25, it's comparing it says Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. If you compare who he is versus that Levitical priesthood, the former priests were many in number um, because they were prevented uh, by death from continuing in office. I always think that's one of the funniest lines in Hebrews. Like, you know, hey, what, what happened to the old guy? Well, he, you know, he died. What happened to the guy before? Like, why don't these guys last? Well, they keep dying. I, and we can relate to that. You know, you can think of some of the best players or coaches or businessmen and women you've ever seen in your entire life. And you know what happens to them? Best president, best king, whatever. They're all dead. Right? You know, well, why didn't that guy keep going? He was on such a roll. Well, he just died. Right? He, you know, he lost his... It all went. He didn't have the ability anymore. What happened to the... Well, they kept dying. And in comparison, he says this to Jesus, verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Like, in other words, He doesn't do the dying thing that all the other guys do, right? He already did that and overcame death, and so it's done. And it's won. Consequently, verse 25, lovely statement. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, the old guy who represented God for you, who just died, and the next guy died, and Jesus died for you and overcame death, and he's there now. The provisional gives way to the permanent. That Levitical system, as gracious as it was, was merely provisional. It was giving way to Jesus, pointing to Jesus and would ultimately give way. So this is grace, but it's a point. It's a pointer. It's a blueprint for what's to come. The second thing, and we'll wrap up, and it's this. God's holiness is unchanged. So let me explain it this way. Okay, I know, like, if you're halfway decent with the Bible, you go like, yeah, God's holy. God's holy. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Sure, his holiness is unchanged. Let's apply that to Nadab and Abihu. So I'm going to start with this idea. I made this up. This isn't a you know, like an official psychiatric thing. I'm going to call it the fifth child condition. The fifth child condition. You can forget it right after the sermon, but for the sermon, this is important. The fifth child condition. And what I've noticed is that you know when your parents and if you have your first child, what do you do with that poor child? You love it, you love it so much, you over-engineer that poor child, poor little boy or girl. You know, right? It's all like we're gonna, you know, we everything's gonna be perfect. We're gonna parent perfectly, and we're gonna feed them perfectly, and we're gonna have these perfect rules um, because we're gonna get a perfect kid. And then that kid goes off and, like, sins on you, right? You know, right? But you're engineering that because you kind of think instinctively. I mean, you wouldn't say this out loud, but I'm going to outparent this kid's sin nature. Almost like they don't need the gospel or something. So there's a lot of engineering that goes on. Well, then you have your second one, and you're like, you know, I don't know. Well, let's keep trying, right? You know? So you kind of engineer, but you're not over-engineering the kid. And then, but what I notice in the bigger families, by the time they hit like kid five, Fifth Kid syndrome, they're kind of like, I, "Whatever." <laughs> okay. I mean, they're like, "Good luck, and you don't know if they're saying that to the kid or the world, right? You know like, "Good luck. We'll see how this goes, right? Because they've, they've got experience with that. My roommate in college, a really great guy named Doug, he was the middle son of three sons that's all they had were boys three boys he was the middle one and he used to tell me he's like you know my parents were good parents they loved us they, they were pretty strict but my older brother I mean he had lots of rules and they were very strict you know I, I'm not not overly strict but they wanted him to do the right thing and they pushed him and that sort of thing he's like with me they were they were kind of like that but they were relaxed a little bit it's like our little brother he got cookies for breakfast before school Because he wasn't a morning person, right? I mean, so there there again, I mean, I was like, thank God they didn't have a fifth. I mean, can you imagine what that last one would have been like? We are not, this generation, we are not God's fifth child. Where God's like, I mean, I don't know. Now, why do you change as you have more kids? Well, part of it, so to give you the benefit of the doubt, some of it's perspective, right? Not all blood is, you know, like, you're going to die blood, right? Not all tears are like big deal tears, right? So you get some perspective. You get some seasoning. You know that first one, you're like, oh, sorry. And then, you know, about that fifth one, you're like, you're going to be fine. Um, You know, mommy's on the phone um, kind of thing. (laughs) So there's the perspective. But there's the other side of it, too. And the other side of it is fatigue, Like you just lower your standards. Your standards are there, but your kids have just tired you out. That doesn't happen with God. His his kids have not tired him below his standards. God is not like us. The God whose holiness consumed Nadab and Abihu has exactly the same standards of holiness. In our worship, we have warm access to God because we're confident to enter that holy place by the blood of Jesus because he's so great. We have warm access because Jesus is so great. We don't have low standards access because God has turned into whatever. And if you want to know where the fear of the Lord comes in, it's here. Because we realize that God is gracious and he's granted us access, but he hasn't changed a thing. If you were going to be okay before God, you know what it was going to take? It was going to take the death of Jesus for you to be okay. You're a mess. You're a wreck. And he's gracious, but he's that holy. So if there's one you mess with, you can mess with me. You can mess with the person next to you. It's not right. Whatever else you do, don't mess with the Almighty. He's gracious, but he's holy. And his holiness is unchanging. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful to see what you've done in the past. We see all these rules that are strange to us and so arduous. And we can see your grace in it. Um, but we're so grateful that it points to fulfillment and completion and perfection in Jesus. The once for all, sacrifice the forever priest. And, uh, and we're confident to enter your presence, to be before you because of who he is and how he's represented us. We know that we can be made alive and forgiven and and made holy because of him. We, We recognize that you are holy and that that holiness is intrinsic to you. If we would be holy, it would be a derived holiness. We would get it from Jesus. And we thank you that for those of us who have believed in Jesus, that we have it, that Jesus is that great, And for those in the room who don't yet know him, we pray that they would know your grace through him. In Jesus' name, amen.